Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Well, I hope you guys are doing well. And if you're not, um, maybe this message is just for you tonight. Um, Tonight we're talking about the sovereignty of God. And you're probably thinking, why on earth, of all the studies I could have done, why did I choose this topic? And if you've done any kind of studying on this, it's, you feel like you, you, you bit off more than you can chew when you study into this. And if you're asking why, it's because I was asked to do this for winter camp. <laughs> I taught on this actually at winter camp about a month ago now. And uh, we are, our theme was the attributes of God. And so I was asked to do the sovereignty of God and as you, I knew I had some stuff in mind, but as you study even deeper, it's like, man, my mind's just blown. And so my hope is that your minds will be blown tonight uh, at just how amazing and how, how holy God is. He's just so beyond us. And so it's also important to, to know that God is in control of everything. Despite what's going on in your life, as difficult as it is, God has a plan and a purpose behind it. And so... Um, if you are here and you were at winter camp and you're probably thinking, oh, I already heard this. Well, if you fell asleep, you can hear it again. Uh, if you were f- fell asleep at winter camp, and maybe it's just a good reminder and a refresher. And so let's pray and we'll, we'll get into it. Lord, we come before you and, oh, God, you're a holy God. You're above all, all things, all names. There is no other God like you. There is no other God, period. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here who's anxious, who's buried in, in worry, who's going through difficult trials, and they're wondering where you're at. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to them tonight. I pray, Lord, you speak to all of us tonight. And help us to understand that you're a God who's in control of everything. And uh, I pray you'd soften our hearts, Lord. I pray for the gift of teaching. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease, that you'd be exalted tonight, that your words would flow out of my mouth, that I'd be refreshed in your spirit, and that you'd speak to each of us tonight through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So there's four questions I'm going to tackle tonight. First is, what is God's sovereignty? What, is, what even is that? The second is, if God is sovereign, do I have free will? If God is sovereign, why do bad things happen? And if God is sovereign, sovereign, can I trust him? So let's tackle the first one. What is God's sovereignty? And I'll do my best because this is such a, I can just give it a one word thing, but it's so much deeper because we can't just slap a definition of who God is and call it good. It's, he's beyond our understanding, the Bible says. And so I'll do <laughs> what I can. Uh, but Noah Webster defines sovereign as supreme in power, possessing supreme dominion as a sovereign ruler of the universe. In other words, God is supreme. He's king. He's ruler over all the universe and everything outside the universe as well. He's in control of everything. And to even begin to understand this, we have to know some basic things about God. The first thing being that God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He possesses all power in the world. He can do anything. That is anything so long as it doesn't go against his nature. For example, the Bible says that God can't lie. It's impossible for him to lie. It goes against his nature. It's just as impossible as trying to create a square circle. It's impossible, right? No one can create a square circle or an oval triangle. That's logically impossible, just as the same thing as it is for God to lie. It's logically impossible. It goes against his nature. He created our universe out of nothing. Imagine that, nothing. He spoke exactly, he, you took right from my notes, he spoke it into being. He spoke it. And by the way, this wasn't in my notes, but this kind of came to my mind. The Mormons believe that uh, God had some material to work with, and then he started creating everything from there. 
That's not so. The Bible says he spoke it out of nothing, from nothing. He spoke the universe from nothing. Okay, imagine the power of this being. He's all-powerful. Okay, this, imagine, this is an all-powerful being. Colossians 1, verse 16 says, For by him all things were created. And by the way, this verse is talking about Jesus, who is God, by the way. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Luke one thirty seven. For with God nothing will be impossible. Psalm 147.5 Great is our God and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. <laughs> right? In other words, we're never going to be able to just fully understand the, the ways of God because his understanding, it's infinite. It goes on and on. It's beyond measure. Amen. Jeremiah 32.27 Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? <laughs> right? God's like, is there anything too hard for me? He's, as philosophers would call, uh, the most maximally great being. Like, that's his Big, as grand, as great, as most powerful as it gets. And that's God. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. The second thing we need to understand, to understand God's sovereignty, is that God is also all-knowing. He's omniscient. There isn't anything that he doesn't know about. He can see in your, into your mind, your heart. He knows what will happen tomorrow and in 10 years from now. God is outside of time and space. He has no beginning. He always existed, which can be hard for us to understand because we live inside of time, a time continuum. God is outside all of that. He's outside of time and space. He invented time and space. Our concept of time, he created that. Psalm 147.4 says this, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. You guys ever tried counting the stars at night? I think we give up after like 10. We're like, one, 10, okay, I give up. And maybe you didn't know this, but before the Hubble telescope and before people really, you know, with modern technology, back in the medieval times, they actually believed they pinpointed just how many stars there were. People, scientists counted about roughly 6,000 stars. And they're like, all right, great, 6,000 stars, that's great. Until the Hubble telescope came out a few hundred years later. And they went, they zoomed in, and you could see even beyond of what we see. And we realized just how, <laughs> how puny we are. We're tiny. And just how there's billions of stars out there. There's not just 6,000. There's billions and billions and billions of stars out there. And he created it all. By speaking it into being. And he, and look at this, look at this verse. He gives to all of them their names. Each one of them have a name. Billions of, like, what kind of, obviously a being who's all powerful, right? And who has this ability to name every single star. That's incredible. First John 3.20, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He knows our hearts. Jeremiah 23, 24, can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Lord, you can't hide from God. And we're going to read about Jonah tonight and how he tried to run away from God. There's no, you can't do that. God's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Hebrews 4, 13 and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees everything. He sees your hearts. He sees your mind. You can't hide it from him. He knows everything. God is in control of everything. He made the universe with purpose. And he created you with purpose. There are some people that they call themselves uh, deists and they believe that God created the universe. He spoke it into being, but then they think that he kind of just set the universe and kind of took a step back and let, let it do its thing. And basically they don't believe God intervenes. That's not what the Bible says. Yeah. 
the Bible does not agree with that line of thinking. No, we see that God has planned everything. He's planned everything. Everything in human history, everything's been planned from the beginning. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all been planned. The Bible says that those who believe in him, he predestined before the foundations of the world in Ephesians 1. And probably some of you probably think predestination, and you probably, maybe if you come from a certain background, that's maybe like a, a taboo word, right? Where you're like, ooh, predestination. What's in the Bible? <laughs> and we're going to tackle that. We're going to talk about free will. At the same time, we'll get, I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll get there. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God's plans will be carried out, whether we like it or not. Whether we like it or not. So we see that God is in control of everything. God isn't a being who just made the universe and stepped back. No, the God that you and I worship, he's involved in the affairs of man. He's involved with all of it. He planned all of it from the beginning. So this leads to the next question. If God is sovereign, then do I have a choice in anything? Do I have free will? If, God, if everything's been planned and everything's been predestined, then what, the, what, do I have choice? Do I have free will? And for centuries, this has been a huge subject of debate within Christianity. You got the well-known Calvinists who love to talk about predestination and they don't like to talk about free will. Some don't even believe in free will. They think that God's sovereignty, they think like God actually chose people to go to heaven and, and some Calvinists believe that God chose people to go to hell, which I don't see in the scriptures. God desires no one to go to hell, but that all would come to repentance. So you have one camp that really emphasizes God's predestination and his sovereignty. But then you got the other camp, the Arminians, who really love a focus on free will and our choice and everything and how we can control things by our choice. And that also isn't biblical entirely. No, to be clear, what the Bible teaches is that there's both. Yes, we have free will, and yes, God is in control of everything. Yes, God predestined us to be conformed to his image, and yes, we, at the same time, willingly follow Jesus. And we're going to look at a story tonight about where we see both of those at play. And I like to think of it, this is the best analogy I can kind of think of. I like to think of it like a movie. Raise your hand if you've ever rewatched a movie. All right, that's, I hope all of you. Okay, good. All right, we've all seen a movie the first time and then we watch it a second time, right? Okay, so imagine you're watching whatever that movie is. You're watching it the second time. You already know what's going to happen, right? You, you know the beginning and you know the end, okay? Now, for you and I, we know that we can see the beginning and the end and the characters in the movie, so to speak, are making their own choices, Right? They're doing what they're making their own choices and we see that's going on, right? But we're just, for this analogy, we're just viewers, right? We can't intervene. We can't do any of that. We're just watching, but we know what they're doing. They're making their choices, but we see the beginning and the end, right? For God, God can, God intervenes in time. In fact, he orchestrates things to work out according to his plan. In fact, we, when you and I see a movie, we can only see one scene at a time. God sees every scene all the time. Okay? Let that blow your mind. God sees every single scene of all of human history. He sees every scene all at once. Where you and I, we're limited to where we can only see one scene at a time and go into the next scene and then to the next scene. No, God, he's, he's bigger than that. Let's turn to the book of Jonah. And it's important for us to know that God does intervene in the affairs of mankind. Yes, we have choices. And yes, God is sovereign. And we're going to see a perfect example of, we see both of those things at play here. Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read through most of the book. It's a short book.
Give you guys a second to turn there. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you know anything about Nineveh, it's the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And if you know anything about the Assyrians, they were people you didn't want to mess with. You wanted to stay away from Nineveh as far as you can because uh, they would torture people in unspeakable ways. Right? There's a reason why Jonah does what he does next. Verse 3, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he chose to arose and, and run the opposite direction, not just from Nineveh, but from the presence of the Lord. He was trying to escape God's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, which, by the way, our crew over in Israel, they actually just stopped at Joppa not too long ago. They were there. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So Jonah tries running away from the Lord. God called him to go to Nineveh. Jonah willingly chose to run away. He, he runs. He runs away, not just from Nineveh, but from God's presence. But it's not humanity who's in control of everything. It's God. Because he, says verse 4, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty storm on the sea. And so the people on the ship, they're, they're freaking out. They're trying to lighten the load on their ship, toss it overboard. But Jonah, he was at the bottom of the ship, asleep. Verse 6, so the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will call on us or will consider us so that we may not perish. Because they tried praying to their gods and it didn't work because they don't exist. <laughs> they're praying to probably blocks of wood. So they're going to Jonah like, maybe, hey man, pray to your God. Maybe he, maybe he can help us here. Maybe he'll consider us. Verse 7, And they went and said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? In other words, they cast, they probably had some dice or if you've seen... If you're young, maybe. If you've seen the VeggieTales version of Jonah, you know, they play Go Fish to figure out who's, who's who, right? <laughs> so imagine that, and it all falls on Jonah. Jonah. And they're like, dude, who are you, man? Where are you from? Like, what did you do to cause all this, man? And Jonah, verse 7, no, what verse am I? Verse 9, thank you. Verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So here he acknowledges, this is who I am. I'm a Hebrew and I serve and I fear the God who made everything that you see. This, this water, the storm and the dry land that we're really desperately trying to get to now. Verse 10, then, men, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. In other words, it was getting worse, more violent. And he said to them, verse 12, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest, this great storm, is because of me. Nevertheless, the men, verse 13, rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. So here, Jonah says, that basically the people on the ship are like, what, what should we do with you? Like, what, what do we do to get this storm to stop? And Jonah's like, just 
chuck me overboard. Just chuck me overboard and it'll all be over. Now, I don't think Jonah really needed to do that. I think he could have just stopped, repented, asked the Lord for forgiveness, and said, let's turn the ship around and let's go, I'll go to Nineveh. But what appears to me here is that he's like, I would rather drown here in the sea than go to Nineveh. Like, just chuck me overboard, I'll drown, it's fine, you guys will live, and that way I don't have to go to Nineveh and die probably a horrible death, is what he's imagining from the Assyrians. He's like, I'd rather drown than get, you know, do what the Assyrians will probably do to me. That's his probably, probably his line of thinking. So the crew's like, we well, don't really want to do that. So they tried rowing to dry land, and it, the storm got worse. I wonder who caused that. <laughs> so they said, it got to a point where they threw Jonah overboard, and the crew was praying to God. They, came, they prayed to God, praying that they wouldn't be charged for this. So they, verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. So even despite Jonah's rebellion, God used that to be a witness to these crew. Verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah didn't really have a say in this. (laughs) Now, you see Jonah's free will, don't you? You see that he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He does not want to go to Nineveh. And God says, you're going to Nineveh, whether you like it or not. God is in control. God is sovereign. So he sends this fish, maybe a whale, don't know. And he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if you've seen the Jonah VeggieTales version, or if you've seen Pinocchio, anytime you see people in a like in the cartoons or in the movies, and they're in the belly of a whale, they make it so big, like this room, right? And there's like shipwrecks inside, and it has its own little beach inside the belly of the whale. Okay, this, that's not what Jonah was experiencing. And somehow they have light in there too. Okay. I'm imagining, okay, a place that's first of all completely dark. You got stomach acid in there. You also got water in there. Jonah mentions in this next chapter that there's seaweed wrapped around his head in there. Not to mention the smell, right? Like, we know what our own puke smells like. I can't imagine what a whale's like, ugh, yeah. Right? And I hope you get grossed out because Jonah's literally in this, okay? And we're not going to read chapter 2 for the sake of time, but he's basically praying. And we'll jump, skip over to chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, no, sorry. The last verse of chapter 2, verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So here God is giving him a second chance, saying, Look, you know, God didn't have, God could have used anybody He didn't have to use Jonah, but he's specifically using Jonah. And he's giving him a second chance. He could have let Jonah drown because of his rebellion. He deserved it. But God is showing him mercy in this moment. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he goes in, and this is what he says. You guys got forty days. If you don't repent in forty days, party's over. God's going to bring fire, brimstone is going to wipe you guys out or maybe he's going to bring in another nation. Like judgment day is coming in 40 days if you guys don't stop what you're doing. And I just imagine Jonah going, all right, I'm out, and then walks away. <laughs> like I did, I said what I need to say. Verse five, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed the fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. So he says this, you guys got 40 days or else God's going to wipe you out. And that's all, it, that's all it was. That's all it took. And the people in Nineveh, okay, imagine this. They probably saw Jonah. He's probably bleached 
from the stomach acid. He probably has no hair because, by the way, true story, and I want to say the late 1800s, maybe early 1900s, a man actually did get swallowed by a whale, and he was in there for two days, not three, two days, and he came out looking like some freaky alien, okay? <laughs> he's, like, bleached. He's probably looking like Smeagol from Lord of the Rings, maybe, where he's got a few strands, and, yeah, okay, something that's not a pretty sight. And the Ninevites, they have that this, this, this person walking in the city, and he says this, and they're like, I believe that guy. I believe him. But what was at work here was the power of God. The power of God was at work here. They believed, they didn't just believe him, it says they believed God. And they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the, then the word came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is straight up from the top. The king is saying, everyone needs to be on board with this. We're all repenting. We're all turning away from our sin and we're turning to God. There's a change here. Some people call this a revival by one of the greatest where you have an entire city, especially one like Nineveh, to repent like that. that isn't, that's crazy. Only a God who's sovereign can do this. Not one single man who was in a whale can do this. This was the power of God. And they said so. Verse 5, they believed God. Who can tell, verse 9, if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. He didn't, he didn't torch Nineveh. He could have. They deserved it. They deserved it. They deserved God's judgment in the same way that you and I deserve God's judgment. Yet God showed them mercy. Chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. In other words, Jonah is, he's ticked off. He's not happy at what just happened. What he saw happen in Nineveh is the last thing he wanted to see. And you're thinking, man, this is a prophet of God. You think he'd want nothing more than to see the Ninevites turn from their wicked ways and have mercy. This guy, he had some prejudice. And I'm speculating. I think something personally happened to Jonah's family. There's nothing in the Bible. This is not in the Bible, so I'm not saying this is what, but this is just what I think is possible, hypothesis. I think the Assyrians did something to his family to where he thought, I can never forgive these people. These people deserve to be torched. They deserve to die. They deserve that. And I think there, you can see the bitterness in his heart because he was angry that this happened. And he's like, God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to do that. He's like, I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were a merciful God. You're, you're a God who relents from doing harm. I knew you were going to be this good. And he's like, I'd rather die right now. You guys sense this? The bitterness, the anger in his heart? Verse 4, Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jenna went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. Then he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Now God is just showing grace. Okay. Jonah, at this, if, I, if I were God, I'd be, first of all, I'd probably do what Jonah would do. Just torch Nineveh. Right. Second of all, if I didn't do that and I was seeing what Jonah's doing here, I'd torch Jonah. But that's not who God is. Thank God I'm not God. Thank God Jonah wasn't God. We'd all be torched. 
thank God, God is God. And he's abundant in mercy and grace. But as morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm, and so it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that it grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, Is it right for me? And then uh, Jonah says this, It is right for me to be angry even unto death. Jonah says, I have a right to be angry. And that's why I think something, something happened that it's not in the scriptures, but some, I think something happened for him to, have the, to be this angry. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? And much livestock? Wow. And then it just ends like that. Jonah's, that's it. You're, Micah's next. You're probably thinking, that's it? Like, what, what, what does Jonah say to that? I don't know. But do you guys see the point here? You see Jonah in his free will, right? Didn't want to, he did not like this. He didn't want to do this. But you see God's sovereignty, in a sense, override his free will and say, No. So yes, you can have both at the same time. You can ha- we have free will? Yes. Is God in control of everything? Yes, they work. They're like two parallel lines that work together. And you have the Calvinists and the Arminians and they make it really complicated and it doesn't need to be. It's, it's just right here. It's in the Bible. So this leads to a question that Jonah may probably have asked in his lifetime. If God is sovereign, then why do bad things happen? And this is a question, if you've not thought of it yourself, you've heard of it, and if you haven't heard of it, if you're in high school and you go to college, you will, I guarantee, be presented with this question. If God is good, then why do bad things happen? In fact, this line of thinking comes from a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And he, his reasoning, which is not logical if you really dig into it, is if, if, God is, if there is a God, and he's all-powerful and he's all-good, he's either not powerful all-powerful to where he, he just can't stop evil, or he's not good to where he won't stop evil. And he's like, and therefore there is no God, which if you do a little thinking, there's no, that actually isn't really logical. But a lot of people buy into this. They're thinking, well, God can't exist because bad things happen. And for us, we're thinking, well, if God is in control of everything, then why does he allow bad things to happen? Why do, why? This is an age-old question. If God is sovereign and, and ruler, can he just stop evil? And the answer is this. He will stop evil. He will. He will stop evil. Another characteristic of God is that he's long-suffering. And right now he's giving the world time for people, the people in the world to repent and turn to him to be forgiven. Just like he gave Nineveh 40 days, it only took him, it appears to me, a day. But he's given him 40. And we don't know how much time God has given the, uh, like the world. We don't know how much time is left until he returns. Because when he does return, not, you got the rapture, but then you got the return of Christ when he comes on the Mount of Olives to rule and reign for a thousand years. Justice, true justice, none of the social justice nonsense. I mean, true justice will be established and no more evil. And then, yes, I know you got Satan's release from the pit and all that. Yes, but in the end, evil's done. It's over. He will stop evil. He's giving people a chance. And at the end of Revelation, we see that Satan and his followers are thrown into the lake of fire. True justice. But let's turn to Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. Genesis chapter 50, and this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's mainly a specific verse that we're going to cover. And anytime I get anxious about what's going on in the world or what things going on in my life, I go to this passage here. 
Because if God is sovereign, then why do bad things happen? Why, do I, why is life so hard? Why am I going through what I'm going through? Genesis 50, verse 15. So I'm assuming you guys know the story of Joseph. Hopefully if not, read it. But basically, uh, Joseph, one of the uh, sons of Jacob, right? Jacob. And he, uh, I'm going to really just kind of narrow in here. Basically, uh, he gets sold into slavery by his own brothers. All right? Ouch. And I'm not just saying, ouch. I mean, think about that. The betrayal, the hurt, the pain, emotionally, mentally, that, and physically probably that would have been. To be betrayed by your own brothers and sold into slavery. Which, by the way, the, the Mosaic law wasn't established yet, but that in itself was, is punishable by death, according to the Mosaic law. So what they did here was really serious. Selling their own brother into slavery. And then you have, he, he basically, God shows him favor, and he gets favor in Egypt. But then you have Potiphar's wife that tries to seduce him. And he runs away. Then he gets falsely accused. And then he's thrown into prison for a very long time. And yeah, okay, so that, you have that with his brothers. And then you have this. And then he gets out of prison. And I'm, like I said, I'm paraphrasing. And there's a lot of details in there. He gets out of prison. He gets even more favor than he did before. And he becomes second in command of all of Egypt. You got Pharaoh. And then you got Joseph. All right? And there's a big famine coming. And so he's like, look, we got seven years to prep for this famine because uh, this famine is going to be another seven years. So let's store up. And so he was in charge of this whole campaign to store up grain and all that. So when the famine hit, his brothers come and uh, basically, like I said, paraphrasing, long story short, they find out who Joseph is and um, they realize, oh man, Joseph is alive. We thought he might have been di- dead. Probably We don't know where he went, but... He's alive and he's probably angry at us. So a couple of years after their father died, here we are in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they're thinking, okay, now dad's gone. Now Joseph might, who knows what Joseph's going to do? We don't know. He, we know he's probably angry. He, we, he deserves to be because of what we did to him. We don't know. Maybe he's going to repay us for all the evil we did. So verse 16, So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of your servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Verse 18, then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. So they go to him, begging him for forgiveness. They're like, Joseph, we are so sorry what we did to you. It was evil. It was wrong. You know, we'll, we'll serve you. Like, we'll do whatever you want. Just please forgive us. Show us mercy. We're so sorry. Right? Joseph wept at this. And look at verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Interesting. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Now notice it doesn't say what they meant for evil, God turned into good. Specifically, God meant it for good. The Hebrew word is hasheb. It literally means to plan. God, what they, what they planned for evil, God planned that for good. And Joseph, he got the big picture. He understood this. Because like he said, look, had you not sold me into slavery, had not, all the things that have happened to me, had they not have happened, I wouldn't be where I'm at and all these people would have died in the famine. And he sees that God planned me f- for all this to happen to me. And he's like, yes, what you meant, you planned, you planned it for evil, but God 
planned that for good. He meant that for good. And only a God who's sovereign can have that kind of power. Think about this. A God who can take what the enemy, what our sin, what we mean for evil, and God can take the exact same thing and not just, oop, turn it into some good. No, he meant that for good. He meant it. He planned that on purpose. It was intentional. I think of the Holocaust. As evil as that was, horrible, despicable, horrific, What Hitler and the Nazis, what they meant and planned for evil, God meant that for good. You're probably thinking, how, what kind of good could come out of that? What kind of good could come out of people being tortured and burned? It was prophesied over 3,000 years ago, uh, maybe 3,000, back in Ezekiel, that Israel would come back as a nation and they'd be restored, they'd be brought back to life as a nation. And the Holocaust was the very thing that got that campaign kick-started, right? Because for years before the Holocaust and all that, the Jews were like, we want to go back to the homeland. But the Holocaust was the thing that made it happen. And the Jews were like, we need to go back to our homeland. And on 1948, that prophecy was fulfilled. And now Israel's back. It's back in the game, which now, can, you know, we see in the rest of the Bible, Israel is there. Right? No other nation has done anything, has, nothing like that has ever happened in history. Like, you don't see the Hittites anymore. You don't see the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Right? Ancient people coming back. Israel's the only nation to have done that. So had not the Holocaust happened, this prophecy wouldn't have been fulfilled and Israel wouldn't be thriving today like it would be. What's the most... What's the worst thing we've ever done as a human race? You guys can participate. You can shout out some things. What's the worst thing? And if you were at winter camp, shh, because you know the answer. What's the worst thing, the worst sin we've ever committed as a human race? We crucify Christ. We crucified God in the flesh. We as a human race, and I say we because if we were there, we would have been a part of that mob saying, crucify him, crucify him. We would have been there. And what those people, what they meant for good, or sorry, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Think about that. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. That's why we call Good Friday, Good Friday. Because without the cross, there would be no forgiveness. You and I would be dead in our sins still. And what they meant for evil, God meant it for good. And only a God who's sovereign could do that. Only a God who's sovereign can do that. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And this is very specific. But this isn't just for everyone. We know that all, we know that for those who love God, so this is specific, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So if you're, if you love God and you follow him, all things, everyone say all. A little better. All. All, all things work together for the good if you love God. Amen. But if you don't love God, not all things work together for your good. I think of Pharaoh. Despite seeing God's raw power with the, the plagues in Egypt. And, his, and the Bible says, by the way, that first says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then it goes to a point where God hardens his heart. towards You see God's control and sovereignty. You see Pharaoh's free will. Sees God's power. Something that's completely undeniable. Like, if we saw something like you think you and I would be like, whoa, yeah, I'll follow God, which it's not so. This is, Pharaoh displays basic human nature. Despite everything we see in God's works, we still rebel against him and we still don't believe him. And you see Pharaoh, he hardens his heart and then God hardens his heart to a point where there's no point of return. 
I think of Romans 1, where you see the same thing. We see a people that's so corrupt in their own sin, lovers of, of pleasure rather than lovers of God, where they worship the creature rather than the creator, where they're involved with homosexuality and all kinds, of, there's a whole bunch of sins listed there, but it gets to a point where someone's so deep in their rebellion, they want nothing to do with God, and God gives them over to a debased mind, a reprobate mind, where there's just, he just lets you go in your sin, which is a form of God's judgment. And I think we're there as the United States of America. I think we are living out Romans 1 as we speak. I think it's a form of God's judgment. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. The world, it's not just America, the whole world. But you kind of see, it looks like, it appears to me, America is leading the charge in, in all this sin. Do you love God? If not, then your own actions and bad choices will lead to a part of his plan that will not be good for you. Just like Pharaoh. But thank God for his mercy and grace and his sovereignty, and especially for those of us who believe, those of us who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, not our purpose, not our will, his will, his purpose. And this leads to the last question. If God is sovereign, can I trust him? Can I trust God? Yes. Yes, you can. There's a lot of evil in the world right now. And sometimes it's easy to think, how on earth can God be in control of all this? Seeing wickedness just seems to have control over everything. You see corruption in our government. You see people brainwashing our kids. You see just raw evil in our schools. And even in our churches. It's like, God, where are you? And based on what we just read, I'm saying that what they mean for evil, God means all of this for good. And sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds, but when you remember who God is, and you remember that he's a, he's a God who's in control, you remember he's a good God, you remember he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and what everyone and all the evil people in the world plan and mean for evil, God plans and means it all for good, to work according to his plan and purpose. And we've got to remind ourselves of this fact and that's why whenever I think, man, man, God, where are you? Man, there's so much evil in the world. And I'm like, I just remind myself, Lord, you're in control of it all. You're sovereign over everything. Not just what's going on here on earth. God has dominion over the universe and everything outside the universe. And who are we to think that, to, to just doubt God and go, ah, God, God's not there. He can't be here. So my exhortation to you guys is when you're anxious, when you're wrapped up in worry, guys, we are probably on the brink of a great recession, if not a depression. Like with the banks, I don't know if maybe you thought of like October 29th, 1929, when the stock market went, and then the bank runs happened. Like it appears to me like history might repeat itself here. And if that happens... And all of your money goes. And there's no food. Are you going to rely on yourself and go, I'll, I'll, I'll take control. I'll pull myself up by the bootstraps and I'll do. We don't have control over anything. Jonah tried that. No. God's in control. And it's only logical for us to just trust him. Pastor Chuck, that's famous saying, where God guides, God provides. And you and I as believers, all things work together for the good. We're along for the ride, and it's going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be a rocky ride. There's probably going to be pain involved. There's going to be hurting. But through the end of it all, cling to Jesus. Cling to him because he is in control, and there's a plan, and we have to trust him. Because what other option is there? There isn't. What kind of hope does an atheist have? 
and all these other religions, religious people who pray to false gods, their gods don't exist. They have no hope. A lot of these religions, they're, hope, they're hoping on their own works and their own selves to get themselves into heaven. When we have a God who <laughs> made a way for us to get to heaven and all we do is just trust him. We trust him. We put our faith in him. God is in control of it all. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you that you're a God who's in control of everything. Despite what we see in the news and the newspapers and even in our own neighborhoods, in our own communities, we see evil lurking around every corner in our movies, in our music, in, in everything. It seems to have infiltrated everything, Lord. And it feels like everything's out of control. But Lord, help us. Oh God, help us to remember this fact that you are in control of everything. And what we're seeing around us has been planned from the beginning. And thank God you're a God who intervenes in the affairs of mankind. You're not going to abandon us as orphans or leave us hanging. You're going to be there for us. And help us to trust you, to just take you at your word. I pray for anyone here who's anxious about what's going on, maybe something in their own lives. They're, they're worrisome. Lord, help them to trust you, to put their trust in you, and to remind, help them to remind themselves of this fact that you mean everything for good. Everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly, what everyone else means for evil, you mean it for good. And in the end, everything is going to work out. At the end of the day, we're going to be standing in your presence in heaven. At the end of the day, this life is so short compared to eternity. Help us to have that eternal perspective. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.